Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum with your host, Matt Warhoover. Okay, and we're going to go straight to Joey Lapore and to Dr. Patel coming to us from Vanderbilt. Hey, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Doing fantastic. You guys look great. You look like you've been sleeping for days. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, morning, I, I, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a very lively uh, discussion. I know we changed the topic uh, at the last minute, which is great. Uh, and this is going to be about the butterfly uh, technique, COVID-19 and, and ECMO. Uh, so I'm really excited to hear about this. And Joey, of course, you've been with us before. Um, you've participated in these programs. Everybody knows you, but none of us know that uh, fine-looking young man to your left, Dr. Patel. So maybe you could introduce him to everyone and we'll move forward with this uh, very interesting topic and then hopefully very lively discussion after that's over. All right, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, today we've got a uh, special guest, uh, Dr. Patel. Um, did his uh, medical school at Ole Miss, and now he's joined us, uh, I believe it was uh, July of last year, uh, as part of, uh, is it a two-year fellowship for ECMO? Yeah. So he's in his second year now, um, getting uh, extensive knowledge and, and plenty of experience in, in this field. Um, you know, uh, kind of joined us at the uh, at the crux of, of all this COVID stuff. So uh, jumped right in, and um, you know, now now he is kind of helping out the uh, um, fellow that's in his first year of this program. So mm -hmm. a lot of experience in, in this field, a lot of experience with this particular topic. So, uh, well, yeah, it, it's a pleasure to work with uh, Dr. Patel here. Well, Dr. Patel, good morning to you, sir. I, I, I'd like to ask you, if I may, um, I sure. understand you went to Ole Miss, but uh, are you by any chance a hockey fan, and have people ever called you hat trick instead of uh, yet trick? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not familiar with hockey that much, but, but people have certainly called me hat trick. So you're familiar uh, with you're familiar with what a hat yes. trick is, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah, right. they're very good. <laughs> so I'll have to remember that. So uh, next time I see you, I'll bring you a box of hats. In fact, we got a box of hats. I'm going to probably send you a couple of hats, as a matter of fact. So <laughs> yeah, what is right. your your fellowship? I understand is in ECMO. What is your end goal? So are you doing uh, are you doing thoracic surgery? Are you doing uh, are you doing intern uh, uh, intensive care medicine? What is exactly sort of your pathway here so the audience kind of understands what perspective you're coming at this from? Sure. Um, I, yes, I, I did my um, medical school at the University of Mississippi, and, and I'm uh, in the middle of my general surgery training here at Vanderbilt. Um, and uh, as part of uh, my training in general surgery, we, you know, a lot of us take some time off in the middle of our training for research. And as part of my research years, I've decided to do this ECMO fellowship uh, under the mentorship of Dr. Baquetta. So that's currently where I am, is I've done three years of general surgery. This is my second year of the ECMO fellowship. And ultimately, my plan will be to finish up <clears throat> general surgery and then ultimately uh, uh, start the cardiothoracic surgery fellowship here at Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also noticed on your CV something fascinating to me is your interest in 
Zeno cross circulation. And uh, yeah. certainly I think that, you know, knowing Dr. Bailey the way we did, and of course the very famous Zeno transplant, cardiac transplant with baby Faye and all of that kind of thing. Um, and of course, cross circulation coming from, you know, many, many years ago, predating the, uh, the development of the, of the heart lung machine. Can you kind of give give me an idea of what Zeno cross circulation really is for and what it entails? Sure, uh, and and part of that is is um, I was introduced um, <clears throat> during the ECMO fellowship as part of Dr. Baquetta's lab, um, who has been you know doing uh, kind of uh, mechanical support and and ex vivo organ perfusion for for many many years and. Uh, part of his research uh, essentially looks at how do we address the organ shortage when it comes to lung transplantation, even liver transplantation and heart transplantation. And, and part of his, his research focuses on uh, cross-circulation of organs. Um, so essentially what, uh, just to kind of briefly summarize what we're doing in his lab, is um, a lot of times we, so many organs, uh, specifically talking about lungs, they go unused just because of, of the organ quality. Uh, they're just not suitable for transplant, uh, and a vast majority of these uh, lungs from donors go unused just because of, of poor quality of the organs. Um, so the question becomes, how do we rehabilitate these organs that are not initially viable or usable for transplantation, and how do we support these organs and recover them to get them to a point that we can transplant them into humans. Um, and, and part of this research focuses on kind of xenogeneic cross-circulation, um, essentially where we're taking, it kind of goes off on the idea of ex vivo liver perfusion that we currently use for lungs, mm -hmm. but takes it a little bit a step further um, in that we're essentially right now uh, using animals and essentially using cross-circulation and, and, and supporting these organs, these human organs, lungs, uh, uh, on this xenogeneic cross-circulation platform to rehabilitate these organs and get them to a point where they potentially could be used for transplant. So mm -hmm. essentially, we have an animal uh, um, who is uh, hooked up to this cross-circulation platform um, that has the organ uh, on it, and we support these organs and recover them, potentially. Uh, and get them to a point where uh, they could potentially be used for transplant. So a lot of exciting things happening uh, in that lab. Um, that's kind of the basis of it is, is the underlying question uh, that we're trying to address is how do we um, solve this organ shortage problem that we have um, in the world? Yeah, we definitely do have an organ shortage problem. There's no doubt about that. Um, and especially with lung transplantation, I don't know how many of those you guys are doing over there uh, but certainly here in Houston, um, we have, you know, I mean, I think reasonable success, uh, but it's a, uh, it's a difficult operation and a difficult post-op course for patients who get double lung transplantation. Um, it really, right. you know, it, it gives you some time, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, you know, it's not quite as easy as heart transplants. I don't necessarily understand exactly why the post-operative course is so much more difficult, but it just seems to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, and, and, you know, um, and this research in, in xenogenic cross-circulation is, is hopefully, um, <clears throat> magic. Uh, hopefully provides us some answers in, in how do we not only increase the donor kind of organ availability, but also, you know, how do we improve the, the lifespan and, and, and kind of hopefully um, the survival of these 
Yeah. That's, that's very interesting, Dr. Patel. Thank you so very much for that uh, overview of that. It's, it really struck me uh, because I do think xenotransplantation is, uh, is a, a viable alternative mm -hmm. to, you know, human donor heart uh, and lung and kidney and everything else transplantation, but it really lost uh, significant ground because of people that, you know, uh, animal rights activists and so forth. And certainly I understand that, uh, but it's a, it's a complex problem. We have a tremendous need for organs and just simply not enough of them. Um, but I'll, Joey, I'll let you take it from here. I'm going to be quiet. I know that I have a hard time doing that. And uh, we'll go ahead and get Dr. Patel started with his slides. Are we running the slides, David, or is he? Yes. We're running the slides. So Dr. Patel, if you'll just say, Next, or whatever you want to say, we'll, we'll, that'll, that'll key us to go ahead and advance the slides for you. Sure. Um, <clears throat> sure. Uh, so, you know, I have a, just a few slides to give an overview of exactly what, um, uh, what we've been doing with some of these incredibly difficult uh, patients um, with ARDS secondary to COVID-19. Uh, and uh, we're essentially, for, for VV ECMO, we're doing something called parallel circuits or a nickname for that's become the butterfly configuration, but um, but I'll just give a brief overview of the physiology that we're really trying to address and and why this specific configuration uh, has the potential to provide benefit for these extremely sick um, uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, next. <clears throat> Uh, so just to recap, and everyone knows this, the goals of VV ECMO is to support a patient's hypoxemia and hypercarbia from their respiratory failure uh, to allow long rest and promote subsequent recovery. Um, so when a patient goes on VV ECMO, prior to going on ECMO, they're usually on mechanical ventilation that is likely injurious to the lungs. They're on high-pressure mechanical ventilation, high FiO2. A lot of these, most of these patients are deeply sedated, paralyzed on inhaled vasodilators. So once a patient goes on VV ECMO, the, the, the objective of ECMO, ECMO is not going to do anything to reverse the underlying physiology, the pathology that's happening, but the goals of ECMO are essentially important. The most important thing is to pro promote lung protective ventilation. So as soon as a patient goes on VV ECMO, we really turn down the ventilator settings to, to promote lung rest and recovery. And additionally, we really want these patients to be awake and, and not uh, neuromuscularly blocked, uh, not chemically paralyzed, because uh, prolonged sedation and neuromuscular blockade has a whole host of uh, side effects and, and um, issues um, that we, we can't really deal with in these extremely sick patients. So, so very important to remember that as soon as the patient is on VV ECMO, we really want them to be on lung protective ventilation um, to hopefully promote uh, lung recovery. So we, the ultimate goal is to liberate them from VV ECMO. Next. <clears throat> Uh, to, so VV ECMO is, is very straightforward. It's very easy. It's, the physiology is not complex at all. Um, so the most, the most important concept to understand um, is that in VV ECMO, um, the higher the ratio of the ECMO blood flow to a patient's cardiac output is, is, is essentially determines how well a patient will be supported. Um, as we all know, cardiac output is just the volume of blood that's being injected by the heart per unit time, so usually measured in liters per minute. Um, and all that to say is that the goal of ECMO, uh, the goal of, of the cardiac output is to promote oxygen delivery to the vital organs. Um, so 
you know, the, the, to, just to keep in mind, um, oxygen delivery, uh, the formula, extremely important to understand, is, is the cardiac output multiplied by 1.34 times the hemoglobin times the oxygen saturation of the blood. Um, there's also a component of it that's very insignificant, which is a partial pressure of oxygen in blood, which really contributes not a whole lot um, to the oxygen uh, delivery formula. But essentially, the most important concept, concept in BV ECMO physiology is the higher your ECMO blood flow to a patient's cardiac output, that, is, that determines how well the patient will be supported. So for example, if a patient's cardiac output, um, you know, no matter how you measure it, if a patient's cardiac output is, for example, six liters per minute, and you are flowing the patient at three liters per minute on BV ECMO, that means that at 50% of the blood that enters the patient's right ventricle um, before going to the pulmonary circulation, will be richly oxygenated blood that's coming from the ECMO circuit. So 50% of that blood flow, blood uh, will be adequately oxygenated before going to the lungs for even more oxygenation and, and decarboxylation. So for the most part, if you are at that 50% number, 50 to 60%, if, if your ECMO blood flow to the patient cardiac output ratio is 0.5 to 0.6, then for most instances, you will be adequately supporting the patient um, with those flows. The problem becomes is when you have these extremely sick patients who have an elevated cardiac output from a variety of reasons, whether it's increased metabolic demand, whether it's a septic state, whatever the reason is, these patients are extremely sick. They are in this incredibly intense inflammatory state with a hyperdynamic circulation. The problem is these patients have an extremely high cardiac output. Um, <clears throat> And if you're only getting four to five liters of ECMO blood flow with a single circuit, but their cardiac output is 10 liters, 12 liters per minute, you're, you're really getting less than 50%. You're capturing less than 50% of their venous return. Um, and, and the problem becomes is all of the blood flow that's not passing through the ECMO circuit has to, be, has to rely on the lungs for oxygenation and decarboxylation. The issue is these patients' lungs don't work at all. Um, and, and the degree of lung injury is something that we've really not seen with normal ARDS. Um, and, and the degree of lung injury that these COVID-19 patients have is, is truly extraordinary. And their lung compliance is almost nothing. Um, a lot of these patients um, have tidal volumes of 20, 30, you know, 80 cc's, uh, which is nothing. So all of that blood flow that's not captured by the ECMO circuit has to rely on the lungs for oxygenation and these patients' lungs just don't work. So all of that blood flow that's not going through the circuit is not getting oxygenated before going to the systemic circulation. Next slide. So just, can we interrupt just a second? Hold on, Dr. Uh, Dr. Patel. Patel. Sure. Go ahead. Um, can you put your mic on your lanyard instead of on your shirt? Sure. I think we're getting a little feedback. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, Thank so this is, this is a very typical um, x-ray of what some of our sickest patients uh, look like. As you can see, there are really no lungs. Uh, lungs are completely consolidated. Um, these lungs do not participate in gas exchange. Um, so these lungs have a tidal volume of, of 80 to 60 you know, cc's on, on lung protective ventilation. And, and this, is, this, is not, this is not uncommon. This is... This is what we typically see on chest x-rays for these incredibly sick COVID-19 patients. Next. 
So, so like I said, these patients have an increased cardiac output from an increased metabolic demand. They're extremely sick. They uh, have this incredibly intense inflammatory reaction to COVID-19. They have a hyperdynamic circulation. And all that to say is that they have an elevated cardiac output. And the relationship between, so this, you know, the relationship between VV ECMO cardiac output and a patient's uh, blood oxygen saturation is, is pretty simple to understand. So this is an actual patient we captured cardiac output data on who was on VV ECMO <clears throat> with an ECMO blood flow around five and a half to six liters per minute. As you can see, the blue line represents the patient's cardiac output and the orange line represents the patient's oxygen saturation measured by pulse oximetry. So what essentially happens is, is as when a patient's cardiac output goes up, when the specific patient's cardiac output goes from 10 liters per minute to 12 liters per minute, the oxygen saturation declines. And why is that? It's because at a, at a set blood flow of five and a half to six liters per minute, what's happening is when the cardiac output of this patient goes up, we're capturing less of their, of their venous return uh, through the ECMO circuit, and, and more of it is, be, uh, uh, is, is passing through uh, into the lungs without being oxygenated by the ECMO circuit first. So as soon as the patient's cardiac output goes, goes up, with a set ECMO blood flow, the patient's oxygen, the, the blood saturation will decrease, as you can see. Mm -hmm. um, so even with five and a half to six liters per minute, when this specific patient's cardiac output goes up to 12 liters per minute, their oxygen saturation drops to the 80s. And, mm -hmm. and you know, this is, this is on about six liters of ECMO blood, mm -hmm. blood flow, and, and we're still standing in the 80s. And as soon as the, the, the cardiac output comes back down, uh, goes back down to eight liters per minute, uh, that just means that now we're capturing, you know, that ratio of ECMO blood flow to patient cardiac output is higher. So as soon as that ratio goes up, we're now better supporting the patient. And you, you can see that the, that the oxygen saturation goes up. So increased cardiac output um, <clears throat> with a set ECMO blood flow uh, means that now we're capturing less uh, of the patient's venous return that's passing through the circuit so that just means the patient's going to be less supported. So, and, and you know, this is actual data from a COVID-19 patient, uh, and you can see it's it's not uncommon for these patients to have an incredibly high cardiac output of 10 liters, 12 liters, 14 liters per minute. Um, and if you're only getting six liters per minute, uh, and the patient of ECMO blood flow, and the patient's cardiac output's 14 liters per minute, you're capturing less than 40% of that patient's. Uh, venous return through the ECMO circuit, so the patient's not going to be supported. Next and slide. that's pending. And that, if I'm, do you mind if I, if I just add, uh, ask you a couple of questions during all of this, or do you, would you rather finish all of your slides first? No, no, no. Go ahead. So, so these are very, these are very good points, um, and we see this phenomenon a lot. And the, um, uh, uh, I, I sort of call it a VQ mismatch of the ECMO circuit and the patient. So it's sort of like a perfusion deficit that you see in the lungs. You've got perfusion, but no ventilation. And the same phenomenon occurs. And of course, your flow may be six liters on the ECMO, as you said, but that's pending zero recirculation. So you even have to consider now your effective ECMO flow. But you, right. in my view, and I don't know how you address this, but I'll, I'll, you probably have it in your slides moving forward, and I'm going to wish I hadn't bothered you with this, but there's, I, I'm, I'm struggling with the treating a number to have a higher saturation by depressing the cardiac output with beta blockers, but that then results in me reducing DO2 
to the actual tissues out in the, in the, in the rest of the body. So I, I don't know if that's something that you have thought about, considered, and, uh, and maybe given more, more thought to and have a, 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 an answer to that concern. Um, and, and yeah, we, we've certainly uh, uh, thought about that. Um, so ways that we can address this issue, and again, it, it really is sometimes treating a number. We know that you know, from, from studies that uh, probably having an oxygen saturation above 88% is, is, is probably adequate. Um, what happens when a patient is persistently, when their saturation is, is 82% and their, the, the PaO2 on an arterial blood gas is is 52. Mm -hmm. um, is that going to, to, does that mean anything? And the answer is we don't really know what the lower limit of, of an acceptable blood oxygen saturation truly is for a prolonged period of time. We don't know. It's probably bad, um, but, but we really don't know, especially if the patient is not generating a lactate uh, and they're satting 82% persistently. Is that bad? And, and the answer is we truly don't know if that's okay or not. Um, but to address, you know, what are other things that we can do um, to depress that cardiac output? And, and as you put it, yes, beta blockade is certainly an option where you, as soon as you reduce a patient's heart rate, that cardiac output will come down and you will support the patient better on ECMO. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is, is, yeah, you're potentially reducing oxygen delivery by giving a beta blockade, but that's Probably not the, not the case because even in the cases that we've done that, we don't really see an increase in lactate or anything like that that, you know, uh, signals to us that there's inadequate delivery of oxygen. Mm -hmm. But beta blockade for most of these patients is not very possible just because of their tenuous hemodynamic status. Mm -hmm. A lot yes. of these patients are septic just from mm -hmm. viral pneumonia from COVID-19 and they're hypotensive on vasopressors. So yes. we really just don't even have the ability to give them beta blockade. Yes, very good point. And the other thing I'm curious of is, you know, and maybe the higher number, the higher saturation isn't just a number because what we're seeing is those patients with this persistent, uh, high po you know, low uh, saturation, 82, 86, 84, uh, that we're seeing by leaving them like that, evolving and worsening right heart failure ostensibly from the pulmonary hypertension that may be being stimulated by the hypoxic uh, environment. So we're just, we're, you know, we're, we're struggling. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested to see right. what, what your guys' outcomes are, uh, and I'm really interested in this dual circulation, but concerned about whether or not the COVID-19 lung failure is really a salvageable uh, 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 condition or if transplant really is the only real solution to the problem. But I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and you know, to, to the last comment is, is we don't know. At this point in the game, we just, we have no idea um, if, you know, these specific patients that progress to this degree of lung injury, um, whether or not that, lung injury is, is reversible um, or whether transplantation is the only option is we just we really don't know where that line is where we can say this patient's lungs will not recover and he needs a transplant um, or you know there's still potential for recovery we just we really just have no idea so um, <clears throat> next slide <coughs> 
Um, so, you know, we kind of already briefly touched on this. Um, why do we need, uh, so, so, you know, the, the, all of these things, we struggled early on in the pandemic for a lot of these patients that we were um, putting on ECMO is even with high ECMO flow, six liters per minute, six and a half liters per minute, an additional drainage cannula, whatever, we were really having difficulty supporting these patients. Um, these patients, you know, like I mentioned in the very first slide, the goal of EV ECMO is to promote lung protective ventilation. What was happening for a lot of these patients, even with maximum ECMO blood flow with a single circuit, uh, these patients were persistently hypoxemic. Um, we weren't able to wean their sedation. Uh, a lot of these patients remain chemically paralyzed uh, in an attempt to kind of improve their oxygenation, um, and we just could not support them. And a lot of patients uh, early on um, uh, did not survive, and we just really struggled to really support these patients. And that's where the idea of, of, uh, of potentially increasing support by giving, giving you know, adding in an, an entire second circuit to achieve ECMO blood flows of upwards up to eight, nine, 10, 11 liters per minute in some patients to support them enough to where we could promote lung protective ventilation. We could turn down the FiO2 from 100% to 50%. We could turn down their driving pressure and, and uh, really turn down their peak pressures. Um, Having that the ability to give a patient eight to 10 liters of blood flow allowed us to wean sedation, allowed us to unparalyze them. Um, so, you know, all of these things, the factors that go into it is, is these patients' lungs don't work. Uh, the subset of patients that get this sick, that have this degree of lung injury, their lungs don't work. They have an elevated cardiac output, whether it's from sepsis, whether it's from this, in, you know, intense inflammatory state, whatever the case is, they have an elevated cardiac output. Um, they have increased physiologic demand uh, that, you know, with a single circuit, what we were doing is we were just, you know, sedating these patients. We were paralyzing for, for days and days and days. Some patients stayed, uh, you know, paralyzed for weeks just because we weren't able to wean um, paralysis because of hypoxia. And we just weren't protecting them on the ventilator. We know that, you know, um, uh, when, you, when, when you're beating up the lungs with, with, um, <clears throat> with high vent pressures, and, and a patient stays on 100% FiO2 for a long time, you're promoting hyperoxic lung injury, you're promoting lung injury from ventilator. We just weren't able to do that with a single circuit for, for some of these patients. And, and that's, that's kind of where we kind of started doing this parallel circuit and adding in the second circuit um, uh, to better support these patients. Yeah, I've never seen so many, uh, I've yeah. never seen so many pneumo, pneumos in my life. And you're, yeah, I noticed your x-ray, uh, your patient had a chest tube in. All of ours have chest tubes in. We put a chest tube on yeah, one side okay. for a right-sided pneumo, and then it, as soon as we put the right side, we, we, we fix that, the left side blows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I kind of wish I would have put uh, a couple of other x-rays. But, yeah, that, that's a very typical x-ray. This is not, like, I didn't pick one that was, like, the sickest, like, you know, that's out of the ordinary. Like, this is, this is the x-ray that we see for, for a lot of these patients. And... And as you, you know, pneumothoraces and, and barrier trauma are, are incredibly common in these COVID-19 population. And, and patients that get this sick, like, you know, sometimes a pneumothorax goes unnoticed because a lot of times these patients will have a very large pneumothorax and we won't catch it just because of, it just tells you that their lungs aren't working. With a lung completely down, a lot of times we won't see any change in their hypoxia uh, if they're on VV ECMO just because if that lung goes completely down, it doesn't matter. 
really, because the lung's not doing anything anyways. And in our medical ICU, it's not common to get an x-ray every single day unless there's a clinical indication. So sometimes we miss pneumothoraces because the patients will get a pneumothorax, but we won't know because they're on DV ECMO because their lungs are doing absolutely nothing. Um, and, and, and that's how bad the lung injury is. Um, so next slide. So one of the things real quickly that I've started doing and I've noticed this pretty consistently is on the ventilator, I make sure that the VTI and the VTE are clearly visible. And when I see the VTE, uh, you know, 50 cc's every breath lower than the VTI and the patient starts showing any signs of hemodynamic instability, we do an x-ray and almost always find a pneumo. Now, a few times I've been tricked and it wasn't there. There was a leak somewhere else. But if those two numbers yeah. aren't pretty close and matching, you've got a leak somewhere. The air's got to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, that's, that's a very good point. Um, and, you know, we, anytime there's a, there's a discrepancy in the tidal volumes, there's a discrepancy in the inspiratory, expiratory volumes, you know, the teams, the ICU teams are very good about getting x-rays when they're clinically indicated. But, you know, a lot of these patients, like we have a couple right now, their tidal volumes are, are literally, you know, 80 cc's yeah. per breath. You know, if, a tidal volume, if their tidal volume goes down to 60 cc's, does it really mean anything? You know, probably not. But that's how poor their lung compliance is. And, and you know, like you said, these patients have leaks elsewhere, and we struggle with uh, leaks around the tracheostomy. They have, right. when we try to wean sedation, these patients have this incredible drive to cough, essentially, just from their really terrible lung compliance, and they don't tolerate being awake. And this, consist this you know, vigorous coughing results in kind of probably this tracheal dilation, and, and now there's not a good seal between the trachea and the, and the tracheostomy mm. balloon, and we have a leak there. And so it's just, it's, again, it's, like you put it, you know, looking at the ventilator is a very good way to diagnose a pneumothorax sometimes, especially in the setting of hemodynamic instability. Um, but, you know, it's all that to say is that these patients have extremely sick lungs. Barotrauma-induced pneumothoraces are, are extremely common, and, and we see that, you know, all too frequently. Um, but, you know, for these patients that we weren't able to support on a single circuit, you know, we tried beta blockade, but like I mentioned, it's a lot of that's not possible because uh, they're hypotensive on vasopressors, a lot of these patients. Um, we uh, assured that they weren't having clinically significant recirculation, uh, you know, chest x-rays, or uh, we made sure that the cannulas were adequately positioned. Um, and, and, you know, just uh, we ruled out recirculation for most cases. Um, we typically, uh, a lot of these patients, when they're febrile, their cardiac output goes up. We use the heater cooler as much as we can to bring down their core temperature to, to reduce metabolic demand. But again, it's just all of those things are just not, um, not adequate enough to, to support a patient um, whose cardiac output is 14 liters per minute. Um, and sometimes the other alternative is to just deeply sedate them and paralyze them. But again, doing that for weeks and weeks is just not a viable option. Um, so that's where um, this idea of, of uh, using a, an additional circuit um, in parallel um, to get um, even more flows of, of, you know, anywhere from 8 to 10 liters um, to better support these patients. And since, you know, last August, um, we've, uh, for this specific kind of configuration, we've supported about um, 
13 patients, if I'm not mistaken. Um, again, most have been male. Uh, all of these patients have a high BMI, um, but again, it's kind of the norm in Tennessee. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we're extremely selective in, in who we um, offer this uh, configuration to. Um, um, and, you know, I, there's, in all honesty, there's, we don't have a guideline in place or a protocol in place that, that tells us who we should be, you know, adding in a second circuit to. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, next slide. <coughs> so this is what the typical configuration looks like. Initially, on the right side of the screen, that right, the, the picture on the right side is, is what we initially did, where we have uh, essentially it's two completely separate circuits. Um, so we have a drainage cannula in the right femoral vein. We have a return cannula in the right internal jugular vein that's, that's going to one circuit. And then for the other circuit, we have another drainage cannula in the left femoral vein uh, and then return cannula in the left IJ. Um, <clears throat> the first three patients that we did this for, this was the configuration. Um, and, and, you know, it's with, you know, we, with this configuration, you know, having two large four cannulas in the IVC, um, uh, you know, uh, our preference now is, is when we're putting on a patient uh, for COVID-19, our preference is to use large bore cannulas right off the bat. So our, the drainage cannula that we put is a 27 French and the return cannula is wow. in, the, in the IJ the 25 French. Wow. Um, so That's just big. to essentially uh, get as much as much flow that we possibly can with a single circuit because these patients get really sick. But, you know, even though we found having two large bore cannulas in the IVC um, really resulted in no thrombotic complications uh, that we saw. Uh, and, you know, the issue, the theoretical issue with having two large four return cannulas in the IJ is you potentially could have kind of cerebral outflow venous obstruction. Um, but we never saw that in any of our patients, really. But that theoretical risk is, is always there, is, is if you form clot around these cannulas, now you're impeding um, venous drainage from the brain. Uh, that could certainly result in, in, in bad complications. So that, that theoretical risk is always there, but we never <clears throat> saw it in any of our patients. Um, so what we started doing was um, to avoid cannulating both of the internal jugular veins. Um, we started for the, for the second circuit that we would add in parallel, we would still add in a second drainage cannula in the uh, contralateral femoral vein, but the return line would now, we started wying into uh, the return cannula of the first circuit. And this was possible because, like I said, we use a large bore cannula to begin with. In the right IJ, we put a 25 French. Um, so we found that using a large bore cannula, it, it was easily able to accommodate flows of anywhere from 8 to 10 liters of total flow going through that single return cannula um, with reasonable outflow pressures. And we really, never really saw any, any significant hemolysis specifically from this configuration, from either one of these configurations. Um, so again, uh, you know, the limitations that we're overcoming with uh, this dual circuit configuration or parallel circuit configuration is that we're able to achieve ECMO blood flow of 8 to 10 liters per minute, um, which is not possible with a single circuit because most oxygenators are rated for, have a rated flow of 7 liters per minute. So we're overcoming that limitation. We're overcoming the limitations of you just can't get, you know, 7 liters of consistent flow with a single circuit just because uh, you, the size of your drainage cannula, you know, you have uh, increased venous drainage pressures, 
um, with single circuit, it's just not possible to get those kinds of consistent flows. And especially not possible when a patient is awake and coughing, uh, and you know, with a single circuit, it's just not possible to, to, to consistently get even seven liters of flow. Mm -hmm. So having two circuits um, in parallel, um, independent of one another, um, is, is what makes it possible for us to get, get a total ECMO blood flow of eight to 10 liters per minute. Um, and you know, with that, I'm sure there's some degree of increased recirculation because of this, because you're flowing so high. Um, but but this is you know the this configuration for a lot of these patients made it possible for us to to lessen their sedation, to to unparalyze them, to protect them on the ventilator. Uh, for a lot of these patients, as they began to show signs of recovery and were uh, were awake. Uh, we were able to support these patients and they were able to do physical therapy because of the fact that they were on two circuits and we were able to provide them with eight liters of flow during physical therapy. Um, uh, so next slide. <clears throat> and, you know, we don't, you know, this is something that we are extremely careful about doing. Um, we don't entirely know who we should be doing it for, um, in all honesty. Um, uh, when do we pull the trigger on, on putting in a second circuit? We really don't know. Um, uh, we don't have a, a rigid guideline in place to, to let us know when we should take that route. And, and you know, like I said, for, for all of our patients uh, on BV ECMO for COVID-19, we go down the traditional pathway. If they're not supported, what can we do to better support them? You know, can we beta block them? Uh, can we rule out recirculation? Is the oxygenator working? Um, can we optimize the patient's uh, mechanical ventilator? Um, are they febrile? Can we bring their temperature down? Can we add a drainage cannula first to get a little bit more flow to support them? So that is, that is the pathway that we go down, but a parallel circuit is not something that's in our, in our protocol, in our pathway. So we're extremely careful about who we should do this and provide this therapy for. And, and as of right now, we really don't know uh, really um, who and when we should be uh, doing it for and when we should pull the trigger on on uh, 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 going to a completely second circuit. But some of our indications are, are you know, the patient that we put on BV ECMO, you know, have they, are they on 100% FIO2? Can we not bring their mechanical uh, ventilator settings down? Are they needing to be deeply sedated and paralyzed for a prolonged period of time and we can't unparalyze them because of hypoxia. So those are all, and is it a young patient in single organ failure, you know, without renal failure, um, you know, this isn't, it's not like, you know, a 60 year old that we're doing this for, but is it a young, healthy, otherwise healthy patient in single organ failure um, that's been paralyzed now for a week on, on maximum uh, mechanical ventilation that we can't lean? Uh, those are the kinds of people that we're considering putting in a second circuit for. And, and really, uh, you know, the biggest thing is, is the ethical implications and, and the fact that this is such a, ECMO already is an incredibly resource consumptive therapy. Now you're th talking about adding in a, in a second circuit. Um, so the ethical implications of those are, are massive. And at the height of the pandemic, uh, are you really willing to tie up two, you know, ECMO circuits for a single patient who will invariably be on two circuits for, for weeks and weeks and weeks if not months, um, you know, the fact that now you have a patient on two circuits, you're potentially depriving another patient of, of a life-saving sa therapy just because, you know, you don't have enough circuits for, for everyone. Um, and is it fair for a, for a single patient to be on two circuits for, for months um, and another patient not to get ECMO just because you don't have the resources? 
and and certainly um, with two circuits that just means more blood um, coming into contact with the foreign surface um, increasing your risk of bleeding um, ECMO is already coagulopathic in, in any patient and now you're talking about adding in two circuits um, so uh, you're just adding to that coagulopathy pass, uh, possibly and increasing the bleeding risk and like I said you know you have uh, two cannulas in the IVC, you have a large bore cannula um, in, the, in the IJ, you, there's always risk of, of thrombosis and clot formation around these cannulas. Um, uh, uh, these COVID patients are already coagulopathic, they're hypercoagulable, um, and now you have two oxygenators, two pump heads, all of those things have the potential of, of, of forming thrombus and, and it just means that you know, you have, you're going to have more circuit changes, more oxygenator changes more pump head changes, whatever. Um, it just, all that to say is that it's, it's gonna be an incredibly resource consumptive therapy. And, and we are extremely careful about, about who we're gonna provide this therapy to, but we don't, we truly don't know exactly when the right time to do it is uh, and, and who the ideal patient is. You know, our, our thought is that young patients in single organ failure that have the potential for, for lung recovery is, is who we should potentially be offering this therapy to. Uh, next. Okay. I think that's it. Um, you know, uh, hopefully that made a little bit of sense and, and happy to, you know, have a discussion and, and answer any questions. No, that was, uh, Dr. Patel, that was incredible. I mean, that was great. Fascinating. Um, uh, you know, absolutely. I, I get the idea. I had to, I think I was, was it, it was you I was asking this morning. I was asking Joey, I don't get the butterfly thing, you know, but. Now, now I it. do with the with the double IJ <laughs> and the two circulations going on, kind of kind of catchy. Um, you mind if I ask? Uh, well, actually, you know what? I, I'm really I'm, I ask a lot of questions. Tammy, would you like to ask some questions, and I'll jump in maybe yes, later. Yes, I just have a couple. Um, Dr. Patel, that was really was quite excellent. Thank you. Um, my first question is. Um, is the pathway for these patients, since you don't really know, you can't pre-select them if I'm getting um, the, uh, if I'm getting the gist of how you're uh, going about this. It's really more clinically, you just see that the circuit is not supporting them. So do you typically go from VV to VVV to then the butterfly circuit, or do you just uh, skip uh, the yeah. middle step? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and and certainly we like to avoid that if we can. For example, if we have a patient, um, <coughs> excuse me, that you know that's on that's on ECMO, that's we're getting four and a half, five liters of blood flow, and they're not really supported, and we're limited in increasing our flows, whether because it's it's the cannula size or the cannula positioning, whether we're having elevated drainage pressures whether, you know, uh, is the cannula malpositioned, whatever the case is. If that's the case, we're, you know, we're not able to flow more than four and a half, five liters, five and a half liters of flow. The next step in my mind would be to potentially add a drainage cannula to see if we can get an extra liter and get them up to six and a half liters on one circuit to support them. But if, you know, like I said, we're putting in large work cannulas for these patients to, to begin with, mm -hmm. a 27 French. And if a patient's already got six liters of flow uh, with a single drainage cannula, does it make sense to add in a drainage cannula for VVV ECMO? You know, is getting six and a half liters of flow going to do anything really if they're already not supported? Right. Um, you know, if they're already deeply sedated and paralyzed, is that extra half a liter of flow 
um, going to do anything? Is it going to allow you to be unparalyzed and wake the patient up? Probably not. So in that scenario, if the patient's already flowing six liters with one cannula, in my mind, it's probably, and the patient's cardiac output's like 14 liters per minute, whatever the case may be, adding in a drainage cannula and going to VBV ECMO is probably not going to make a whole lot of difference. Right. So in that scenario, I would probably, you know, we would, add, we would think about just going straight to a parallel circuit. But for that patient that maybe the cannula is a little bit too low and we're having flow issues and, and access insufficiency um, because of cannula positioning, maybe we put in a smaller cannula for whatever reason and we're not able to get more than like four and a half liters of flow. In that scenario, it would make sense to try a drainage cannula first to see if we can get more flow to support the patient more before going to parallel circuits. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for answering that. Go ahead. Go, anything else? Well, my only other question is sort of a silly question, um, but so if you are on the dual um, parallel circuits, are you just splitting your, your flow support equally? Since yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great question, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's a great question. And yes, that's typically what we're doing, um, is, is we're trying to, uh, we essentially try to um, mirror the flows. Um, so if a patient needs, you know, eight liters of flow, then we have four liters of flow with one circuit and four liters of flow with the other circuit. Okay. Um, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's really all the questions I have. Mm, that, that's interesting. Joey, do you have anything you want to uh, uh, talk about? Because I'm probably going to have some really good questions for you too, from a from a from a, a perfusion clinician management perspective as well. Yeah. Uh, no, I I just wanted to maybe make the point. Um, I think with the increased RPMs with the single circuit, you know, you have to remember, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of shear stress on the blood cells. Right. And so, you know, to increase your flows, or the, the parallel circuit allows us to get higher flows, you know, ideally with less RPM. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was just uh, something that uh, I wanted to, to point out. That's a very good, very, and, actually, that's a really good point. And if I may, I'll uh, ask you a question about that. Um, we have been noticing that we are having to go with, you know, higher RPMs than I, I'm typically comfortable with. Um, we've really been, you know, pushing the capacity of these single circuits. What are the, um, what are y'all seeing there when you're on a single circuit? What's the maximum RPMs that your team uh, still feels comfortable in uh, using? And it probably depends on which circuit, they're, which pump they're using. So right, right, let's right. say, let's say percentage. So yeah, do you like percentage. to be at 70, 80, 90 or right. max? Right. Do you understand what I'm asking, we don't, Joey? We don't, yeah. Sorry, yeah, and Joey can, I may have a better idea than I do, but I don't think we have an upper limit of, of normal where we will say, you know, we will not increase the RPMs above this limit. Okay. Um, what we do is, is, you know, clinically, we trend these patients' uh, hemolysis labs very frequently, and a lot of times we see exactly what Joey says is, is Sure, we can probably get six liters of flow, um, six and a half liters of flow with a single cannula and a single circuit. But what we'll see, what we'll start seeing is that the patient's hemolysis labs will go up, their LDH will start going up, their haptoglobin will start going down, their total bilirubin will start going up. And, and that for us is a, is a marker of this is too much RPMs mm -hmm. for, for this patient and, and we're increasing the sheer stress. So we don't have an upper limit of where we'll say we're not going to increase the RPMs above this. Um, it really is patient dependent. Some patients will tolerate six liters of flow just fine. Others won't. 
and they'll start hemolyzing. So it's more of a clinical, um, if we're clinically seeing hemolysis and, it's, and, and that trend is going up, then we know that maybe, you know, the RPMs are too much for this specific patient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So um, if I may, the, uh, I want to talk about your cannula. So you're using, you start off with a 20, you said a 27 for your access cannula right. in, the, uh, in the femoral. Now on the IJ, the 25, Joey, what kind of cannula is that? And where are you putting the tip? Is it a dispersion tip? Is it a single yeah. outflow? What are you yeah. using? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a basically, it's a reinfused, it's an arterial cannula. Yeah. Uh, it's a, you know, 25 French Medtronic, um, yeah, uh, I can't remember the. Yeah, Biomedicus. Uh, yeah. yeah. Biomedicus. So yeah, it's just like, a it's like a, you know, it could be used as a venous drainage, you know, like a short venous drainage or, you know, an arterial, you know, mm -hmm. reinfusion cannula. Do you, so where do you put the tip? Is the tip stay in the SVC or do you advance it into the right atrium? We typically, yeah, it, it's right at that SVC, right atrial junction okay. uh, is where we shoot for it to be. But if it's in the right atrium, if it's in the SVC, um, <clears throat> probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It's, it's, we're mostly concerned from a position standpoint about the drainage cannula. Um, and what we'll typically do when we cannulate these patients is, is we'll purposely um, have the cannula, we'll overshoot and we'll have the drainage cannula up higher just because if the cannula is too, if the cannula is too high, if the drainage cannula is too high, and we're getting recirculation, it's easy enough for us to pull the cannula back always, uh, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. with it after looking at the X-ray. But once the cannula is in at our program, we we avoid advancing the cannula just yeah. from an infection standpoint. Sure. We just don't do that, yeah. especially and, in the and groin. The cannula, yeah. yeah, exactly. And and having the cannula too low is is a bigger problem in my mind because when it's in the, that intra-abdominal portion of the IVC that's collapsible, every time the patient coughs, you're gonna lose flow. So, right. so we like for in our initial placement of the drainage cannula to be a little higher. So you know, if we're having recirculation, we can always pull it back, but if the cannula's too low, then we're definitely gonna have flow issues. Yeah. But as mm -hmm. far as the, you know, the reinfusion cannula, uh, you know, uh, we shoot for the SVC or that SVC right atrial junction. Mm -hmm. Joey, are you guys using the ELSA meter? No, no. So are you just you're just measuring recirculation by looking at the uh, at the return uh, saturation? And another question on uh, to that same point: Do you put a swan in everybody? No, no swan. And Joey, what? So how do you how are you determining recirculation? Is well, it, I, yeah. I mean, you know, if it's you know obviously if it's bad enough, you know, first go on, it's pretty visible. Um, you know, you see. Flashes of, of bright red blood, mm -hmm. uh, watching patients sat, and then um, you know we have a SVO2 monitor. Mm -hmm. So you and you, you know, put on, that on the on the circuit itself. So if you start off correct. with the I mean, cannula, so, you know, you know, yeah, we have a cardio, you know, we have a cardio help that'll monitor it, and then um, you know the spectrum system is what we also have. We'll monitor it as well. So um, and then you know. If, Early on, you know, if we didn't have, you know, when we didn't have those systems, you know, we'd just, you know, pull a gas off the, uh, you know, pre-ox side and mm -hmm. measure it that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So um, uh, what about your anticoagulation strategy? So we're, we have uh, multiple hospitals that we do this, and some of them are a couple of, well, one in particular has not gone to a full uh, zero anticoagulation strategy. The other hospital has almost exclusively gone to that with aspirin and Plavix, given uh, either PO or, uh, or rectally, one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is your guys' experience with anticoagulation? Uh, yeah, our anticoagulation strategy has not changed for COVID-19 patients. Um, we still initially, if the patient has no other indication for a higher uh, anticoagulation goal, if they don't have any, any DVTs or PEs, uh, then our strategy is still, for us, we typically use PTTs to ma- monitor anticoagulation. And, and for us, uh, it's, it's a PTT goal of 40 to 60, 40 um, to 60, unless the patient has an indication for a higher goal. Okay. So you, you're hap- you're, you use, go ahead and use heparin, you put it on, a, you do your initial bolus for cannulation and all that kind of stuff, let the PTT right. come back down, start your drip at you know, whatever rate you're going to start it at, uh, based on the patient's weight and try to achieve a 40 to 60 uh, a PTT goal. And uh, I'm a, I right. mean, we're, we're trying not to monitor it as often. We're about every, I think, every six hours. Mm-hmm. Um, are you doing Q6 PTTs or longer than that? Or what is, what's, your, what's your standard on that? Yeah, yeah, and th- that's dictated by uh, kind of the, the ICU. Essentially, I think our protocol in the ICU is is once the patient reaches that that uh, the goal PTT of where you want them to be, um, then you can start spacing out P- the getting PTTs every six hours uh, mm-hmm. once the patient reaches that goal. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what we do as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, and temp control, do you you know based on these uh, these findings of these patients that you're discussing, where we cannot flow enough with a single circuit and they are intubated and they are. Uh, uh, paralyzed, heavily sedated, paralyzed. What is your feeling on using essentially therapeutic hypothermia, dropping them down to say 35 degrees just to control their metabolic requirement uh, while you try to figure out what we're gonna do to achieve a high a control of their, their, uh, their hyperdynamic state? Yeah, and, and we've certainly thought about that, uh, and, and occasionally, you know, we will have a patient that's, that's extremely febrile um, who, and, 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 you know, that fever is, is definitely contributing to um, <clears throat> uh, their elevated cardiac output and their increased demand. Um, uh, and and we, don't, we, we don't have a protocol in place to, to do therapeutic kind of hypothermia, um, again, because our goal is to, and you know, with hypothermia, you're also, in, you know, kind of inducing coagulopathy. And these patients, as hypercoagulable as they are, um, because of their uh, underlying COVID-19 kind of pathophysiology, they they bleed. These patients bleed. Um, they bleed from the cannula sites. They, they, a lot of these patients, we've, you know, they've had GI bleeds. Uh, they bleed, and and we worry, really, in all honesty, about bleeding. Um, more than we uh, worry about clotting, um, mm. because when a patient becomes coagulopathic, has a GI bleed, um, 
it's it's extremely difficult to to control and and you know cooling that patient and and promoting that that hypercoagulability or you know it's just we worry about bleeding and 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 we've just found that you know lowering their temperature really doesn't do a whole lot um, uh, to to better support them and and you know it's not like all of these patients are are febrile to 38 or 39 and we really need to cool them and that's the underlying reason that they're not supported most of these patients are you know within the 37 you know 36 37 mm -hmm. temperature range and it's not like it's not like fever is, is a big deal like for most of the patients they will be febrile for a period of time but for the most part the fever breaks with medications and cooling and things like that to where it's not like they're febrile for days and days and that's the sole reason that their cardiac output is high and, and they're not supported it's it's part of it um, but it, I don't think it's it's the major driver uh, and, and why um, their their cardiac output and their demand is so high. Mm -hmm. And then uh, awake ECMO, before you intubate these people at all, what is your feeling on that, your experience with that, uh, your wisdom on that, if you've had that experience? Yeah. Uh, because we're seeing more and more of that at this point in time. Yeah, um, we don't do that. Um, we we don't uh, we have a very rigid uh, guideline and uh, as far as um, who we will cannulate for VV ECMO for COVID-19, um, we obviously use the EOLIA criteria. Patients have to meet those, and and in addition to the EOLIA criteria, we have very rigid um, uh, contraindications and relative contraindications on on exactly who will we will cannulate for for ECMO, but uh, we do not um, uh, put COVID-19 patients on ECMO prior to intubation, we don't do awake ECMO, uh, primarily because, you know, last week, you know, I, you know, at the height of the pandemic, we had 40, 50 patients in the ICU on high-flow nasal cannula, on BiPAP. Who do you pick to put on ECMO before mm -hmm. intubation? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. How do you pick between a 40-year-old or a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old? If all of those patients are on maximum BiPAP, um, how do you pick who to pick on, uh, who to put on, especially when you have, you know, 40, 50, 60 people in your ICU and you have a limited number of ECMO devices, mm -hmm. um, how do you even decide who to put on ECMO? Um, and, and a lot of centers are doing it and, and I, you know, I don't know exactly what their criteria, selection criteria is, but it just wasn't something that was going to be feasible here. and and and. You know, we it's it's I've you know I've been fortunate enough to work in an, uh, at Vanderbilt to where we have an extremely uh, very very good COVID ICU attendings and pulmonologists <clears throat> and just the entire staff that you know they they're very good about managing these patients um, without ECMO essentially mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. even patients that are intubation. The team here is, is extremely, they do a you know, phenomenal job in, in getting a lot of these patients through without ECMO. Um, so I think having a, a great ICU team and just, it, it's, I just, in my mind, how do you even pick, you know, without intubation, these awake patients, like uh, with an ICU full of patients, you know, how do you even pick who to put on ECMO? So we have not been doing awake ECMO. The only one, the one time that we did um, was for a very, very young patient that recently had a heart transplant, maybe a, you know, a few weeks prior to contracting COVID, oh. Oh, uh, who uh, ultimately ended up in our ICU on max BiPAP, 
and with kind of a multidisciplinary discussion, we you know said that you know for this specific patient, um, maybe we should put her on ECMO prior to intubation, um, just to, because she was a fresh heart transplant, um, and and maybe mechanical ventilation is not the best thing for her, for her new heart. Um, so we put her on ECMO, but even that patient, even though we cannulated her ECMO before. She was intubated. She ultimately required intubation just because she could not tolerate being awake, because she had, you know, after we put her on ECMO, she had worsening lung compliance. And when patients' lungs get that stiff, it's not, it's not, it's not easy for them to breathe and be awake without sedation. Well, so some even of that patient ultimately needed intubation. So. Some of the, some of the, some of that, that drive that we have, that, that satisfaction, if you will, of breathing comes from the expansion of your chest Correct. cavity. And mm -hmm. so when you exactly. remove like, that, yeah. um, they still feel, even though they're oxygenated and their, yeah, they feel uh, their like they CO2s are normal, they still feel oxygen starved. Yeah. Uh, it's a horrible exactly. phenomenon. And, then, uh, and that, that leads to being anxious, and then the more anxious you are, the... The higher your cardiac output goes, right. and the more you Correct. start stress. Yeah, it's a very difficult uh, phenomenon. And that's you, exactly what we saw in her. Yeah. Do, you, mm -hmm. do you mind if I ask, you know, what happened ultimately? Uh, yeah, so, so we ultimately, you know, what you guys described is exactly what happened, is, is she was ex very well supported on ECMO from a number standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, but she just had this this uh, this sensation of not being able to breathe, extremely tachypneic to the 40s and 50s, um, and ultimately we had to intubate her, and and she got an early tracheostomy, but <clears throat> event but that patient ultimately ended up doing fine. Um, she was on ECMO for about 60 days, um, and you know for the majority of that she was able she was awake on the ventilator with the tracheostomy. Ultimately left the hospital um, and is you know decannulated from her tracheostomy and is, is doing okay at home. So well, that's good. Ultimately, I'm, did. I'm very glad to hear that. I, mean, I was you know I'm I'm very glad to hear that because those are really in my experience at least thus far anomalies. It keeps us going. It right. keeps us wanting to try. But I am right. curious, Joey and Dr. Patel, if both of you could address the issue of you know what your outcomes are uh, with COVID-19 uh, recovery when ECMO is used. And I don't necessarily think you have to be too terribly specific, but, you know, I, yeah. I have a sense of dread. Uh, I'm not happy with our outcomes. Uh, we have saved some. And if you're one of those people, it's it's 100% for you. But I have serious concerns about how many people that were unable to get advanced care because of all the resource utilization for the few that we've saved, have we lost more than we were actually able to save? Um, and it's a real ethical dilemma that we're dealing with. Yeah, we just had a, we just had a, our, our monthly uh, committee <clears throat> meeting, our ECMO committee meeting, where we go over those numbers. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So I will say, when we first started doing <clears throat> VV ECMO for COVID, our numbers were really bad. We had maybe a, a 25 to 30 percent survival. Um, a lot of these patients were dying. So you know, and and the reason, a lot of the reason for that was we were using the same um, criteria to select these patients that we were using for 
non-COVID ARDS. For mm -hmm. non-COVID ARDS, we really don't have an age cutoff. Uh, and, and yeah, initially when we first started doing ECMO for uh, COVID, we were putting on, you know, 55 and 60 year olds. And, and since then, we, age is a big thing. Age is, is a big predictor of mortality, even with ECMO. And, and we, what we've learned to do is we've really tightened our criteria uh, uh, and have, we have very, very rigid selection criteria on who we will cannulate for ECMO. And I think partly because of that, our numbers have, have <clears throat> markedly improved. I think, like I said, initially when we first started doing this, out of the first 10 patients we put on ECMO, three survived and left the hospital. So we had a 30% survival. Since tightening our criteria, you know, using different devices and, and making other changes in management strategy, um, we currently have probably supported close to 60 patients on ECMO um, <clears throat> since uh, over the past year. Uh, we have uh, roughly uh, probably a decannulation percentage of about 67 to 70%, and, and I would say probably our total uh, survival to, to discharge from the hospital is close to 55 to 60%. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Well, we would be, you know, of course, it's, I think that you brought up the operative term, right? The, the key component here is selection. Um, I would be ecstatic if we had a 25% survival at this point in time. Um, and it, it certainly would be good. But, you know, selection, 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 it's kind of like location, 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 I think really is important. But we have seen some very young people with the Delta variant that have uh, really just been destroyed uh, by that particular virus. and. Uh, you know, I don't know your view on this, of course. I, I, I feel, I believe that if the primary cause of the ARDS or the respiratory failure is secondary to an inflammatory response, that that is reversible. Whereas if it is being caused by death of the pneumocytes from viral replication, that is not survivable. But I don't know without biopsying people uh, how you can differentiate between the two. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, again, not a lot of thoughts. Again, there are you know, a lot of people that are much smarter than me that, that you know, struggle with this very same question of, of where is that line of, of lung irreversibility, lung injury, where it's not gonna reverse Whereas, you know, lung injury that has the potential to reverse, like if this, you know, it, it presents in an ARDS like picture, it's if this is kind of inflammatory process, you, you know, you're right. It, it has the potential of, of uh, reversing. Um, but a lot of it is these patients have lung destruction, not, you know, maybe it's from the initial COVID insult, but a lot of the lung destruction is from secondary pneumonias that, that these patients have an incredibly high risk of ventilator associated pneumonias. And, and partly because of that, it, it, that what plays into that is, is the underlying pathophysiology of COVID is these patients get microvascular thrombi in, in all of their vasculature. They get secondary pneumonias, you give them antibiotics, but antibiotics don't work if they can't get to the area that they're treating and these patients have microvascular thrombosis. They have pneumonias that you can't clear, which ultimately leads to lung destruction. So, uh, and we've seen, we don't know. Uh, again, we, again, our lung transplant team is also extremely selective and and who we do transplant for COVID for, we don't do a whole lot. Uh, I think we've only done three so far, but 
we've had patients who, who I personally thought would, this, this patient will never recover. He will never come off of ECMO. We've had patients stay on ECMO for 90 days, for 110 days. Those patients have ultimately been able to be decannulated and they've left the hospital. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's my, you know, the answer to your question is I don't know. Um, there have been many times where I've personally thought that this patient is not going to recover. You know, they will not come off of ECMO, but they've proven us wrong and, and, uh, and we've been able to, you know, support patients. And like I said, the longest ECMO run we had uh, was about 110 days and that patient ultimately left the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. We had a similar time, experience. So. I think she was 93 days. Yeah, 93, 95 days. 93 to 95 days, and she did also. And these are the anomalies, as I said. This, she, I didn't think she was, she was going to survive. She had, we had so much packing in her, in her mouth and her nose, and she was just exsanguinating from her uh, oro and nasopharynx and it was just like, I, I, please, we've got to stop. And we, you know, we didn't. We have an intensivist here that was determined. Well, we weren't going to we, stop. We, we did. did a CT. Right. Well, and she progressed to DNR. And yeah. uh, really, it was just a waiting game, trying to figure out, you know, what we were going to do to get her family here. Uh, they were from far away to try to see her because we really thought this was the end for her. Yep. I tried to get her to you. I tried to get her to, to oh, you yes, all. That's right. I tried to transfer her to you, Joey. I was I was talking uh -huh. to Matt on the phone actually, and we talked to Doctor 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 Jordan, right? Yeah. Hoffman. Yeah, Hoffman. Yeah, yeah Jordan Hoffman. Yeah, Doctor Hoffman, um, and tried to get her up there. And there was because she was uh, Kaiser Insurance. There was all that stuff going on. Yeah, once she started on. doing better, you know, that we thought she needed a lung transplant. And so there were all these hurdles that her insurance company was making for her to be able to transfer out of our hospital that is not a transplant center to our medical center. And so, yeah, you did contact them. It was crazy. It was just nuts. And she... And ultimately, she, we got her off ECMO and she, she went home. She walked out of the hospital. But yeah. a lot of our patients that we have seen decannulated, survive, leave the hospital to LTAC, but they're pulmonary cripples. And so are you seeing a lot of that as well where, okay, yes, they are alive. And life means different things to different people, but if you really were right. to grade their quality of life, is that, are we really looking at a 55 to 60% or 50% survival or are we looking at a much lower number who go on to have a what would be judged as a reasonably good quality of life? That's that's a serious question. Yeah, yeah, and and you know for for this subset of patients that that get that sick, um, we we have we've had you know very honest conversations with with family. Um, we, you know, we let the family know that there's a very good chance that, you know, the patient will never come off of mechanical ventilation, but we just don't know. Um, uh, as far as I am aware of the, the two patients that we've, or the three patients that um, left on mechanical ventilation after an, an extremely prolonged ECMO run, one of those patients that I actually just recently saw, um, he was on nasal cannula. So he was off of uh, mechanical ventilation. He had his tracheostomy decannulated, <coughs> excuse me, and, uh, and, and he was fine. So um, 
again, I, uh, it's, it's, we just, I think the answer is we, we really do not know. Yet we yeah. can assume yeah. that these patients that, leave, that go to an LTAC will, uh, th there's a good chance that they will be pulmonary purples, like you say. They will not ever be able to come off of positive pressure ventilation. But, you know, the answer is we, we really just don't know at this point of time what long-term COVID, especially in these patients that, that get affected so severely, um, what the long-term implications and what the long-term outcomes are, we unfortunately just don't have that data yet. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, those three patients I talked about, you know, two of those patients are off the ventilator. Yeah. Um, so we really, unfortunately, just don't have an answer yet. Um, and who knows, you know, these patients that even though they come off of uh, the ventilator, they're still oxygen dependent. Um, and who knows if they were, uh, will ever come off oxygen. Um, they may in the future, you know, need lung transplants. We just, we really, truly just don't know um, uh, what the course um, will look like for these patients as of right now. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question just to circle back to a previous um, subject we were talking about. When you talked about changing your criteria, what, uh, other than age, what were the, the, the changes that you made? Because we're really trying to work uh, on a criteria selection modification here too and we have good ideas of things that we think we should do but I'd be interested in hearing uh, what you guys decided to do yeah uh, and and uh, you know that uh, um, is uh, the, the whole uh, tightening criteria and, and looking at potentially who would you know be the patients that would benefit the most is, is a lot of that work you know has been done by um, uh, the great kind of the ICU team here uh, Whitney again and she's one of the um, uh, ECMO kind of uh, NPs, uh, NP in the MICU, and, and she did a lot of the work to really uh, tighten our criteria, and, and she looked at exactly, you know, a lot of research went into formulating that document. But essentially, so age is, is probably one of our most important cutoffs. Uh, number two, we look at uh, organ failure. So we really hesitate to put on patients uh, on ECMO that already have, at the time of the, the consult, if they're in renal failure, if they look like they're going to progress to um, uh, needing CRT or dialysis. Um, so we look at degree of organs involved. So if it's just single organ failure um, without any renal involvement or any other issues, then that's, and, and we look at medical comorbidity. So uh, a patient, a 40, 50 year old with diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, it's, it's a big deal. Um, and, and we look at the number of medical comorbidities. We, at the time of consult, we look at how sick the patient is. Are they on multiple vasopressors? Are they on, are they, uh, are they septic? Are they on a ton of vasopressors and inotropes? Um, do they have any cardiac involvement? Um, is, uh, uh, we look at, um, uh, and then obviously the other absolute contraindications are standard, like, you know, no malignancy or, or things like that. Um, and, you know, initially what we've recently also done is, is we've, we've also have a BMI cutoff, is um, uh, we really are avoiding um, for COVID specifically, not for just uh, non-COVID ARDS, but we are avoiding, you know, putting on patients uh, with a BMI of over 45 is, is an absolute contraindication for us right now. Mm -hmm. um, because, the, you know, the heavier the patient, um, likely the higher the cardiac output. And, mm -hmm. and again, it's, it's just one of those things where uh, those patients are at risk of needing, you know, dual circuit support. And, and we just, you know, in, in the setting of a pandemic, it just may not be the, the most ideal thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I think uh, if we, if I had to pick kind of the, 
most important things is, is one, do they truly meet uh, uh, EOLIA criteria? Like, has the patient been deeply sedated? Have they, are they on inhaled vasodilators? Are they paralyzed? And with all of those things, and, potential, and have they been prone? And with those things, do they still meet indications for ECMO is, is the most important question. Obviously, if, we, if the patient doesn't need an indication, then, then you, know, you should try to manage them without ECMO. But do they meet indication? And then age, uh, we're avoiding, uh, you know, one of our absolute contraindications right now is, is an age of over 45. Uh, and that really has stemmed from the fact that over the past two, three months, we've gotten so many consults for patients, in, you know, for patients who are in their 30s and mm -hmm. 40s, healthy young patients, that we've had to turn down so many of those patients just because of resource uh, limitations and hospital capacity. Uh, so that's where that age limit of, of over 45 came into play. Is, is, is that was a recent change just because of the influx of, of these extremely young, healthy patients uh, uh, who were getting uh, very sick um, <clears throat> with COVID. So that's where that came in. So age, BMI, uh, and uh, uh, organ failure. If they are in renal failure, that is a, a relative contraindication for us. And at the time of consultation, how sick are they? Are they, in, uh, are they on a ton of vasopressors and inotropes? which uh, in that scenario, uh, probably not the most ideal patient to put on ECMO in the setting of a pandemic. Well, I have just two questions left and I, I in deference to your time, and thank you so much for being so generous with it, both of you. Um, our postpartum ECMOs, uh, our patients that have come and have been pregnant, um, you know, most of them have been between 20 weeks and we had the one 27 weeks that just recently passed and they were able to do a C-section the ones that have not been viable fetuses, um, they've aborted in the, you know, in the bed after putting them on ECMO. Um, but our, uh, our survival on postpartum ECMOs is zero. And we've had quite a and few. And we've had uh, nine. Nine, yeah. Nine, and it's zero. Um, do you have any, and these are very young, otherwise healthy women. Um, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, no, again, and we, we really did talk a, a lot um, about um, when we first started doing this uh, um, in regards to postpartum. So, you know, we had a multidisciplinary kind of discussion with the obstetric team about when we should cannulate these patients and if we should change our uh, criteria uh, or the indications specifically for these patients. Because from an OB point of view, uh, you know they want these patients to have a higher saturation goal for the fetal for of fetal course. purposes. They want the, the fetus, you know, they want the patient's oxygen saturation above close to 95%, which in a sick COVID patient is a lot to ask for a patient not on ECMO. So you know to to do that, um, you know, to achieve that goal, um, the question came up: Is should we put these patients on ECMO? who may not meet traditional criteria, but should we put them on ECMO to achieve that higher goal for this specific subset of patients? And we ultimately decided you know, not to really alter our, our, um, uh, our uh, ECMO kind of initiation criteria is, is we still, um, you know, for these uh, pregnant uh, women, we still, the criteria is still the same, is, is our, our initiation criteria still remain the same is we t typically do ask for these patients to meet EOLIA criteria. Obviously, they can't be prone, but um, 
but no other thoughts. Again, we've done five uh, of these patients, um, uh, and, and all five have fortunately survived for us, although um, the rate of uh, kind of intrauterine fetal demise is, is, is very high. Uh, out of those five patients, four patients had um, fetal demise, and, and one patient, uh, fortunately, um, uh, the baby survived, um, and she delivered uh, after we decannulated her from ECMO. Um, but again, we're, we're still kind of, um, we haven't changed our criteria specifically for these groups of patients, um, but um, the five that we've put on ECMO, they've all fortunately um, survived. And one is actually still on ECMO, so I guess I should say four have survived and one is still on ECMO. Mm -hmm. And my last question, and I'm going to be done, is um, because we sometimes do see uh, right heart uh, dysfunction, which, you know, eventually leads to uh, uh, hepatic problems and we're seeing liver enzymes going up and eventually liver, liver failure, um, which, you know, we can, we try using milrinone and these kinds of things, but uh, what do you think of the Protec Duo cannula uh, as an ECMO cannula? Have you, do you have any experience with it? Have you tried it? Um, do you think it's even worth trying it? What, what are your thoughts in order to try and support the RV uh, during these episodes? Yeah, um, uh, so to answer, to you know, I'm gonna preface this by saying I have no experience with the Protect Duo. We just don't, we uh, at our institution don't use uh, that specific cannula um, for, for ECMO. So I have very little experience, we've had, we did have a patient who was transferred from another institution uh, who did have a Protec Duo who uh, they transferred him for um, a lung transplant evaluation, but I don't have any experience with that. Um, and I guess my thoughts are, um, you know, we've had very, very sick patients um, with uh, extensive lung injury uh, who've been on ECMO for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and months. And yeah, if you look at their RV, it's not gonna look great. Uh, you know, their RV struggling because of the underlying ARDS. And, and we've never run into a case where we've had just florid right heart failure from ARDS. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they can have pulmonary emboli and things like that. But for the most part, when these patients end up on vasopressors and you look at their heart and their RV's not the greatest, it's because of their underlying ARDS and not necessarily because they're going into right heart failure and that's what their shock is, result, it's cardiogenic in nature. For most of these patients, the shock is, is septic in nature and, and they have vasodilatory shock from underlying COVID pneumonia and sepsis from another potential bacterial source. But we've never run into an issue where, uh, you know, a patient's uh, on pressors and, and inotropes potentially um, and, and all of that is secondary to, to RV failure. We've just never seen that. We've mm. not had um, even these patients that stay on ECMO for, for months, we've not seen hepatic dysfunction from any of this. We've personally just not seen this. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I, I can't really comment on that, but, and, and I can't really comment on the protector just because we don't use it, but you know, my thoughts are the underlying problem, the reason we're not able to support these patients is because we're not adequately matching their cardiac output with mm -hmm. enough ECMO yeah. blood flow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Protect Duo with a, you know, a 30, 32 French cannula, how much flow can you truly achieve? About um, 2.9 liters. Know, yeah. Yeah. And so you're not it's addressing not very the good. problem. Is, mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't get enough flow to support the sickest of these patients. 
And sure, it may work for a lot of these patients that get cannulated before they get intubated who maybe aren't as sick as some of these patients. Maybe you can get away with three liters of flow. Mm. But yeah. for all of our patients, uh, specifically talking about the patients that have ended up on parallel circuits, you know, a Protect 2 doesn't underlie, doesn't address the underlying problem yeah. of the fact that you can't, you, you're not getting enough ECMO blood flow to match their cardiac output. Yeah, and there's just so many there's just so many tubes you can put in somebody, right? You know, you can only do so right. much. Um, Joey, you have any experience with it at all? Or when that patient came in, did you, did you find it to be a, a functional cannula where it was, where it was, you know, working well enough? Because their argument, of course, is that you have no recirculation. But of course, you're going to have a little bit of TR. You're going to have a little bit of uh, pulmonary uh, valve regurgitation because you got this cannula going through them. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't like the cannula, I, but we're getting some, some, some push to, uh, to use it. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad you haven't had that experience with not being able to manage the right heart with just medications and, and pulmonary vasodilators and that kind of thing. But Joey, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'll, I'll preface the, the not having the RV failure our, our ICU team does a phenomenal job with managing these patients um, prior to uh, ECMO, um, meaning they do a, a great job managing so that we don't have to put them on ECMO. Mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, we, I don't think we wait until it's like a, a Hail Mary type situation, but they, they take a lot of preventative steps and, and do a great job at managing patients um, so that way, you know, a lot of them may not, you know, ever have to go on ECMO. Uh, I, I can't speak for other centers. Um, you know, I, I don't know if they just maybe uh, put them on, you know, prophylactically. Um, but yeah, I mean, here that you know, like I said, they they do a great job managing, you know, so that we, you know, we don't have to, you know, go down that route. Uh, as, as far as the Protect Duo, I uh, don't have a whole lot of experience with it. Um, you know, we, we keep, uh, I think we have two on our shelf that they may use uh, for a tandem heart, but other than that, no, I mean, we don't use it for ECMO uh, when we did have the patient come in with it. You know, I, either way, I mean, one way or another, I mean, it wasn't uh, a terrible, you know, situation. We didn't have nonstop issues with it. <clears throat> I do know um, in, in town, you know, or, or across town, I, I think they hospital here uses it exclusively for for covid um and i can't speak for their experience but that's just what i've been told is, is that's what they use for their covid cannulation is the protect duo so mm -hmm. um you know I, I i've heard good and bad so um yeah all right very interesting yeah, just to, go ahead sir yeah that, that one patient you know we you, you mentioned about positioning and the one patient that was transferred here for a lung transplant eval um, I think the position, you know, as soon as the patient got here, the tip of the cannula was in the left PA. Um, you can see it on CT scan on mm -hmm. the chest X-ray. And, and incidentally, and I don't know if this is just coincidental, but the left lung of that patient was more consolidated than the right lung. Again, yeah, not sure if it means anything or, or what, but ultimately that patient ended up getting transplanted. He was, he kind of was able to do physical therapy and he was awake and obviously <clears throat> moving around didn't have, and he didn't need a whole lot of uh, ECMO blood flow support. Like he was on two liters of flow with very little FDO2. It was mostly just for hypercarbia. He just needed that sweep. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, our team here determined that that we couldn't wean him completely off of ECMO, and and uh, given the way his lungs looked on CT scan, uh, he likely wouldn't survive without a transplant. So ultimately, he he ended up getting transplanted and left hospital. Mm -hmm. Did you change the cannulation, or did you add anything, or did you just leave no, reposition we did, we kind it? No, we just left it because. Yeah, we determined that he likely, you know, with a multidisciplinary group, determined that he likely wouldn't recover without a transplant. So we ended up just leaving him with that configuration. And, and I mean, you know, he was able to do physical therapy and walk around and um, stayed on it for about a week and a half to two weeks at our hospital before getting transplanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, my final thoughts, and I'd, uh, uh, and I'd like to get your final thoughts, but my final thought is ECMO is not a cure. It may help buy you some time to find a cure, but it ain't a cure. I can yeah. tell you that right now. Um, Joey, your final thoughts? Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. Um, you know, and, and that's just, you know, one thing that I, I've, I've picked up from, you know, just being around, um, like, outside hospital transports and, and hearing um, you know, Dr. Patel and, and others, you know, talk to families is, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, this isn't going to cure, you know, the problem. It, you know, it'll, it'll help buy us some time. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it, it may or may not work. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's really up to, you know, trying to, you know, let those, those lungs rest and, um, you know, try to uh, recover to a point of, you know, hopefully a potential decannulation. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the communication with the family, that's been a, a challenge because, you know, these families uh, obviously don't have uh, medical training, don't really understand the kind of support that their family members are, are getting, and they're holding on to the thought that perhaps this is going to be what saves them. And ultimately, it's really, we don't know if it's going to save them or if it's just going to you know, delay the overall process of the, the inevitable. Yeah, of what's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. it, it goes back to, you know, is this going to be a lung that it decides to recover or not? And we just can't seem to figure out a pattern for that one. No, we yeah. can't. Yeah. Dr. Patel, um, thank you so much again, Joey. We appreciate so much that you both joined us um, and gave us so much of your time. Uh, Dr. Patel, if you'd like to just close us out with your final thoughts. Uh, yeah, no, I, I totally uh, agree with everything you guys said that uh, and, and that was a learning point for me as an ECMO fellow who, you know, would be the first person that, that these families would talk to about ECMO um, and, you know, I try to do my best to explain to them exactly what ECMO is, is in simple terms as much as I can, but I make it, you know, extremely important to, to make it to them help them understand that this is not something that will reverse what's happening um, with their lungs. Uh, like you all said, it's just a way to potentially give, give, the, give them some time to help their lungs recover. But, you know, I uh, unfortunately sometimes always, you know, uh, paint a pretty bleak and dismal picture and say that, you know, unfortunately they have maybe a 50 or 60% chance of survival. Uh, ECMO is not going to cure this it just gives us time and, and it's certainly you know one of the most difficult things to do is to talk to family um, and, and try to you know explain to them exactly how sick their loved ones are and, and that, you know we'll do everything we can to get them better but 
you know, COVID's been extremely challenging, um, uh, and I've learned so much. Uh, a lot of everything I know about ECMO uh, likely has been from taking care of these COVID patients, and you know, it's been. Uh, I've been very fortunate to work with a great uh, ICU team, uh, you know, a great group of perfusionists, and just a great uh, team that's uh, really helped uh, take care of these very sick patients over the past year. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you both, and um, we look forward to having you back on the show again sometime, Dr. Patel. It was a really great presentation. Very, very interesting. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. sir.